Well, we greet each of you in the name of Christ, extend Christian greetings to you. And this morning, I think it's needful that I begin with just a note of appreciation for uh, individuals or in this, within this congregation who uh, seriously took to heart my closing comments of my last message. I received uh, anonymously in my mailbox three nickels. <laughs> and uh, uh, apology to my fellow pastors, I'm now salaried. <laughs> so uh, my hat's off to you guys. All right, well, this morning I want to come back to uh, the second part of God's gentle touch to depression. And before we move into that, I think it's necessary I define depression to give you a little bit more of an understanding of it, something I probably should have done in the last message, but I didn't. Uh, Just a definition. And uh, a Christian psychologist defined it this way. He states, depression is undue sadness, dejection, melancholy feelings. It is the feeling of worthlessness, guilt, and apprehension. He further adds, Depression is unrealistic grief. Anxiety is unrealistic fear. Then I might add to that, I think there's a struggle with shame as well. I think there's sometimes under the the banner of the victorious Christian life, we give little room for those who struggle emotionally. So there's some shame involved with that as well. Webster's further adds extreme discouragement and a sense of hopelessness. I think if there's anything that would define uh, depression, it would be the sense of hopelessness. Just a deep sense. A desire to quit, just to kind of give up on life. And um, yeah, to throw in the towel. Well, we're going to look at two more individuals this morning that battled with depression. Or we can see depression in their life, uh, biblical characters. And the first is Elijah. Now, we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 19, but I want to kind of give you the setting. Ahab is king, but Jezebel is the real commander-in-chief. Jezebel, in all reality, runs the kingdom. And uh, she has slain or forced into hiding all the prophets of the Lord, perhaps except maybe maybe, uh, uh, Elijah. And she has turned to Baal worship. She has at her disposal 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah is the only one that seems to stand up. He has uh, confronted Ahab. He has told Ahab there's going to be a famine in the land, and there was. He alone withstood those 450 prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And... uh, most of you know how that went. He had, there was a competition on who could bring fire from heaven. And God, he seen the marvelous hand of God as God answered his prayer. And fire came down from heaven and uh, the, the uh, sacrifice. Afterwards, Elijah rounds up the 450 prophets of Baal and he, and he, uh, and he kills them. He, he uh, uses the edge of the, sl- the sword. And then if that wasn't enough, After that, he tells Ahab, there's a rain coming, and you better hurry home. And Ahab runs ahead, or Elijah runs ahead of Ahab 
some 30 miles to Jezreel. He outruns the chariots. He leads the chariots. He's kind of the biblical version of Roadrunner. <laughs> so here in chapter 19 is where we pick up the story. Chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab comes home to Jezreel, and notice what he does. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, with all how he had slain the prophets with a sword. So the first thing that Ahab does is he comes home, and he tells the real commander-in-chief what Elijah has done to her prophets. And uh, you, you can almost see Ahab kind of walking and rubbing his eyes and pouting as he reports to Jezebel. Notice what Jezebel says. Then, Jeze then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, so let the gods do to me and more, if I make not thy life as one of them by tomorrow about this time. It's a nice way of saying, Elijah, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to make you like those prophets you just uh, used the edge of the sword. So what does Elijah do? Verse 3 tells us. And when he saw that he rose and went for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself, when a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, It is enough, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than the, my father's. Clearly, Elijah is depressed. I mean, he's fearful, he's alone. And he tells God, you know, God, I'm finished, I quit, I'm through. Imagine that. Consider what Elijah's just come through. He's faced 450 prophets all by himself. It was 450 to 1. He's also just ran a 30-mile marathon. And uh, you just thought after that kind of thing, he'd have been welcomed as a hero. Instead, he has to flee for his life. So Elijah physically, Elijah, he's drained. Emotionally, he kind of feels like a martyr. If you look at verse 10, you'll notice what he says is his prayer. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, and for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even, on, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah's telling the Lord, I'm the, I'm the last man standing, guys. It's just me. Poor little old me. And then he tells the Lord the second time in verse, thir uh, verse 14 the very same thing. He said, he says it again. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, I happen to be old enough where I remember back to uh, beyond the days of cassettes and eight tracks to the days of records. And... Uh, if a record got scratched, it would kind of play in the same groove over and over and over again. Well, this is Elijah. He's beginning to get in the groove. And I'm quite sure the Lord heard him the first time. 
but he's, he, he's, he's discouraged. He's got this martyr's complex going on. He's depressed. He's taken his eyes off of God, and he's put his eyes on Jezebel and himself. And I want all of you to understand how fast this, this has only been a few days since Mount Carmel. How fast this can happen, how fast this can hit you. You're one day on the mountaintop, and a few days later, you're in the valley. Well, I want you to see how God handles this. Verse 5 it says, and he lay, under, he lay and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. He did eat, drink, and lay down again. I want you to notice, first of all, that God doesn't condemn him. He doesn't rebuke him. Um, there's no stern words, no three chapters of Scripture. No sermons. He just gives him something to eat, and he lets him rest. Gives him some time. It wasn't meals on wheels. It's meals on wings. You know, I'm convinced this morning we can learn some things from God and how to work, how to help those with who have depression. Um, then it says, the angel of the Lord came again for the second time, and he touched him and said, Rise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink, and went on the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Herob, the mount of God. Do you see how compassionate God was? How gracious God was? How tender he was with Elijah as he dealt with depression? There was no sermons. There was no scoldings, no condemnation. He just takes care of Elijah's physical needs, allows him to rest, and just gives Elijah some time. Now, in verse 9, Elijah gives God the same story. He, he came thither unto a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to me and said, What, what doest thou here, Elijah? And Elijah gives him that same poor little old me story. And uh, it's just me, Lord. I'm the only one that's left. And God gives him some information. He says, yet I have, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, and all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. One of the truths that we need to understand in depression is that in all reality, we are not alone. We might feel alone, but God always saves for himself a remnant. You will never be alone. You are never alone. Now, Notice what happens, but God isn't finished with Elijah. There's something else that God is going to do to help Elijah. Notice in verse 19, And so he departed thence and found Elijah, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he went with the twelfth, and Elijah passed before him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left his oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, 
Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, slew them, balled their flesh with the instruments of oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And then he arose and went after Elijah, and noticed what it says, and ministered unto him. Elijah was depressed, feeling alone, and God gave him a friend. It's something that we all need as individuals. Uh, one of the best antidotes to depression is having a really, really close friend. Somebody that you can express your feelings to. Somebody that you can open your heart to. Um, yeah, a depression is... And those who, who struggle with depression often have a difficulty in cultivating deep relationships. There's a third individual we want to look at this morning, and that individual is Jonah. You know the story. Um, Jonah, God asked Jonah to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach that the judgment of God is at hand, that within 40 days, God is going to destroy the city. But Jonah refused. He fled on a ship heading for Tarshish, and, of course, the ship came into a storm. The crew cast lots, figured out Jonah was the problem. And ultimately, they threw Jonah overboard, and he was swallowed by a whale. He spent three days and three nights in the belly of that whale. While in the whale, he repented, and the whale spit him back up on dry ground, and he went into Nineveh. Now, I think that Jonah having spent three days and three nights was a sight for sore eyes. In that whale, he was a sight for sore eyes. I really think that with that acid in that stomach, he was probably bleached pretty white and would have probably made anyone consider repentance if just by looking at him. But nevertheless, Jonah was faithful, and he went through the city of Nineveh preaching the judgment of God was at hand. And the city of Nineveh, was a big enough city, it took him three days to preach from one end of the city to the other. And the people of the city heard God's message and they repented. They put on sackcloth, sat in ashes from the least to the greatest. Even the king repented. You'd think Jonah would be elated. But Jonah was not elated. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. He despised them. In fact, we're going to see what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, for he, he was very angry. And notice what he says. There are people who say, well, we don't know why Jonah would have fled to Tarsus. Jonah tells us why. And he prayed on the Lord, saying, I pray thee, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled unto Tarsus, for I knew thou art a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of evil. Jonah knew if the people heard the message and actually repented, God would repent from destroying them. 
And he didn't want the people to repent. He wanted to see them destroyed. He hated the people of Nineveh. He was prejudiced. One of the things I encourage in this congregation is simply questions. And occasionally you get fielded a tough question. Uh, one of those moments came when I was asked, what do I do in those moments that I don't seem to care? And that's a tough question. And I responded, are there moments you do care? And the response was yes. I said, well, that tells me that within you, you have two natures. You have the Holy Spirit and you have the Adamic nature that you're born with. And actually, what you're experiencing is a good thing. It tells me you're born again. I want you to understand that this process of becoming like Christ is a messy process. And God doesn't, always t God doesn't promise that we're always going to feel like a child of God. He doesn't promise us that we will never fail or that we will never fall. But he does promise us that he's going to be with us. I said, in those moments you face those kinds of situations, it's important you come back to some very simple things. One, did Jesus Christ die for your sins? Yes. Did you personally receive Jesus Christ? Yes. I said, be assured that God will not leave you at that, that uh, the scripture says, the righteous man falls seven times and he gets back up. God is not going to leave you at that place. God is going to draw you back. And when he does, repent. Repent. The reason I bring this up is because Jonah was at a similar situation. He not only did not care, he hated the people of Nineveh. And I want you to notice how God gently draws him to himself in a very gentle way. Look at verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, I beseech thee, my, beseech thee, my, take, I beseech thee, my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Dost thou well to be angry? God is saying to Jonah in a very gentle way, Jonah, do you, do you really have a good reason to be angry? Notice Jonah's response. Jonah is so upset, he doesn't even answer. He goes out of the city. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the side of the city. And there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what might be, would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made, it come over, made him come up over Jonah that, he might, that it might be a shadow over him, his, his head, to deliver him from his grief so that Jonah was exceedingly glad for the gourd. Well, first of all, the city of Nineveh is rejoicing. Revival has broken out. And the city of Nineveh, according to what God tells us, was 120,000 people. It was a large city. 
They're experiencing revival. They're experiencing God. But Jonah, depressed, bitter, slides out of the city, up onto the hill on the east side somewhere into some kind of a hut. And there he sits and sulks. Now let's give Jonah some credit here this morning. First of all, he spent three days of preaching. Uh, preaching is tough work. It takes some diligence, and it takes some. It does take some. It does take some. It's it's, it's hard work. And uh, like Elijah and Moses, Jonah is exhausted. Uh, on top of that, he's a bitter man. Emotionally, Jonah is just filled with bitterness, and spiritually, he's, he's extremely carnal. So he's sitting in this hut. Uh, he's sitting. In, he's sitting at the edge of the city. He's sulking, and uh, notice how what God does with him. There's not going to be any lightning uh, the, from heaven. There's no rebukes. Again, there's no sermons. God just gives good old Jonah some shade. He lets this gourd grow up over him, gives him some shade so he's comfortable, and uh, just gives him some time. I love God. Jonah Jonah just needed to repent. But you know what God does? There's no pastors, there's no committees, and there's no sermons. You know what God uses? A worm. He just uses a worm. Isn't that great? Don't you love how creative God is? It says, uh, verse 7, But God prepared a worm. When the morning rose the next day, he smote the gourd that it withered. There's no bug spray. He didn't have any bug spray. He didn't have any fly swatters. But Jonah was in a fix. Here his shade is gone. And uh, it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished himself to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah, he's miserable. He begs to die. And so God asks Jonah a question. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast, thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. Notice what he says. And I should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein there are more than six score thousand persons that could not discern between their right hand and their left and also much cattle. In a simple way, saying, Jonah, do you see how selfish you are? You cared more for a gourd that you had absolutely no, nothing, you didn't make it grow, you didn't help him die. You have more concern for that gourd than you did for 120,000 souls in the city of Nineveh. You see how selfish Jonah was? And God deals with Jonah. 
allow me this morning to make this practical for your life and for mine. There are four ways I think that all of you could enter in to assist those who are working through depression. First of all, don't criticize and condemn. Uh, the, the longer I live, the more I realize our God is big enough to give all of us very different life experiences. You haven't walked in that person's shoes. Uh, the other thing I'm just going to tell you, it doesn't take a new birth to condemn someone. It does take a new birth to minister life to someone. So don't criticize and don't condemn. Secondly, Take care of the physical needs of those working through depression. Just, just see what, what you can do to, to take some of the load off of their life. Just take care of their physical needs. That's all that God did. He just took some of the physical, took care of some of their physical needs. Elijah was a great example of that. Give them a helping hand. Thirdly, give those working through depression some time. Often those things that people need to work through, they didn't happen overnight. So for them to work through some of those problems, it's not going to, to heal is not going to be just overnight. It's going to take some time. So give those who, who are dealing with depression, just give them some time. Fourth, be a friend. Be a friend. What I mean is be gracious with those. Uh, be tender. Be merciful. Give a listening ear to those that are working through difficult situations. Just minister life to these individuals. Now to those who struggle with depression, allow me to give you a threefold cord. Solomon tells us in the scriptures that a threefold cord is not easily broken. Something to lift you out or help you work through depression. The first strand is this. Cultivate deep relationships with one or two other people. Uh, open your life. Become vulnerable. Uh, allow someone inside, allow someone else inside your heart. Because a big part of depression is just loneliness. Just being lonely. The second strand is this. Allow others to assist you with some of your physical needs. Don't be afraid to say, hey, I, need, I, need, I could use some help. I could, I could allow others into your life. Don't, don't, build a, don't, build, don't build a wall. Allow others to come close to you. Thirdly, know and believe the truth. Guard your mind against the subtle lies of the enemy. I, I couldn't help but notice three very capable men. Moses, Elijah, Jonah. Three very capable men became crippled because believing very small but very subtle lies. 
You know, the devil doesn't care if you go to church. He doesn't care if you come to church on Sunday morning. All he cares is that you never become effective. That you never edify or build up others in the kingdom of God. He, just, he doesn't care if you warm a pew on Sunday morning. He's not threatened by you coming to church. But he does want you to be ineffective. The Apostle Paul reminds us in the letter of Philippians, he said, finally, brother, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things of good report, and if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, notice what he says. Think on these things. Spend time putting in your mind or your heart the things that are solid and that are good, that are edifying. I've often told the youth boys, you guys are just like some refrigerator. You put garbage in, you get garbage out. Put good stuff in, you get good stuff out. It's kind of how it works. So guard your mind. Well, this morning, I'd like to share in the closing thoughts, I'd like to share some words from Charles Spurgeon. Unbeknownst to many of you, Charles Spurgeon wrestled with depression. And I want you to hear what he says. It's really good. He writes, before any great achievement, some measure of depression was very usual in my life. This was my experience when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me, and the thought of my career that seemed to open up so far from elating me cast me into the lowest depths of depression, and out of which I uttered my misery and found no room for praise. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude? Why, I would slip away to my village obscurity or emigrate to America and find a solitary nest in the backwoods where I might be sufficient of the things that were demanded of me. It was just then that the curtain of my life, curtain was rising on my life's work, and I dreaded what it might reveal. I hope I was not faithless, but I was timorous and filled with a sense of my own unfitness. This depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. Isn't that amazing? Could it be that God is wanting, is preparing you for something great? Just for the struggles that you've gone through. He's preparing you for something that's really big. Let's pray. Father, this morning we again are grateful for the scriptures. We are just grateful, Father, for how practical the scriptures are. Lord, we're grateful for that we are able to find within those scriptures some practical answers to the problems of today. In the year 2016, problems that we face. Lord, we are grateful that through, that for those, the examples of those who have walked before us, and this morning we stand on their shoulders and uh, realize that the greatness that we have is because of those who have gone before us that have been faithful. Father, I would pray that those who pray for this morning for those who struggle with depression, I would pray that they might find in these, these words some comfort, some assurance that, God is, God is, that, that you are faithful, Lord, and that uh, you will walk with them through this process. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do with these words through these scriptures. Uh, we give you the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. James, I'm going to turn the time.